Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver a world-class customer service experience, better, more customized, more personalized buying path, and how you and your organization can create a brand new stream of revenue, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Again, that email or the web address is www.bookingprotect.com. Have you signed up for my brand new newsletter? My team is putting together something called Talking Tickets. It's a weekly email with five top stories from the week of entertainment, sports biz, concerts, entertainment, and more. Uh, with a little analysis from me about how and why you should be paying attention to these things and what you can think about and how you can frame it for your own business. You can get that email by or each week comes out on Friday by sending me an email to my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com, talking tickets in the subject line, and I'll get you signed up. Also, are you coming to my special workshop in Melbourne, Australia on the Monday, the 18th of November, Fans for Life, Creating and Keeping uh, Customers of the Future is going to be a one-day extravaganza of marketing and selling ideas. I'm going to cover some of my favorite things that I've developed over the last 12 to 18 months, including uh, customer-first focus, um, customer uh, fan bill of rights, um, the sports fan funnel, using merchandise as a gateway to bigger purchases, and a whole lot more. You can get tickets, only a few left, I think less than 10, by visiting Eventbrite and searching Fans for Life. It'll come up. You'll see it. Come and see me. It'll be great. My guest today is a guy by the name of Jesse Lawrence from Ticket IQ. Uh, I wanted to have Jesse on because we had a nice conversation at ticket managers event in New York City last week and he started talking to me about the data that was coming up in the NBA and the World Series. So this is recorded on Thursday October 24th about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and as I'm talking to you now it's about 8 o'clock at night on the 24th and I wanted to get the podcast up before uh, World Series Game 3 because the Nationals are up two to nothing, and by the time I got the podcast up by its regular course, the whole thing could be over. Um, so I wanted to get this up. We had a really good conversation, very interesting. Uh, we did talk about data. We talked about uh, the World Series data, the NBA data. We talked about a direct-to-consumer, direct-to-fan trend that Ticket IQ is a, a part of. We talked about the startup journey. Uh, we talked about customer frustration in the buying process. We talked about why live experiences are so unique. Um, and we talked about Jesse's feeling that maybe this business side of sports business is putting itself in a little jeopardy and we kind of go into that it's a really really good conversation and one that i am trying to rush out so if everything sounds a little bit um, rushed it's because i wanted to get this up so you could have it before world series game three so without any more from me here's my conversation with jesse lawrence on the business of fun podcast I want to welcome Jesse Lawrence from Ticket IQ to the Business of Fun podcast. Jesse, man, what's going on? Dave, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be great. This is a long time coming to Alabama fans talking. It's, well, I mean, that's not rare on this podcast, <laughs> but, you know, roll tide. <laughs> roll tide, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm an Alabama fan by marriage, but that still counts. That's okay. You know, you, know, you could be an Auburn fan by marriage, and that would be like a death sentence. Um there's a lot of you Auburn. Would, fan. I would not be on your podcast. <laughs> you, you would. I, I actually know the, the people who work in the ticket office at Auburn, and I make fun of them all the time. But they couldn't be nicer folks. Um, and I know they yeah. listen and they're, they subscribe to the newsletter and everything. And they're, they're great people. But you know, you, if you weren't from, if you didn't go to school in Alabama and you weren't busting on Auburn, you really wouldn't be a real um, Alabama fan. So I, I figured right. that's right. I must do that. Um, now I have been wanting to have on for a while so this is going to be great and then we talked a lot about a bunch of stuff that we're going to cover so this is going to be a fantastic episode um the first thing though is like many people probably are 
either have seen like your TechCrunch articles or maybe heard your name, seen you on Twitter or whatever, but not 100% certain about what Ticket IQ is or what you do. Can you introduce us to you and the organization so that like we can, you know, kind of frame the conversation a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Ticket IQ has a couple kind of sides of the business. Um, we are a ticket marketplace, kind of like a, a StubHub or a SeatGeek secondary focused. Um, but we also um, work with a lot of rights holders to help them sell tickets direct to consumers. So at the end of the day, I actually think of Ticket IQ as a data company. And data has two components. One is the ticket data, right? All the data we use in our uh, articles and content um, covering uh, uh, the market, the t- you know, the ticket market, both events and uh, sports and music. Um, and then also data in terms of in-market fans. So my background was digital media. I worked at a company called Media Math here in New York, which is a demand side platform. We were helping consumer package goods companies. This was 12 years ago, um, do direct consumer acquisition. And as we were doing it, I, um, we were actually working on a campaign for proactive, which is a, a gutty ranker acne medication. And, you know, they were a huge direct consumer uh, response client. And, um, my job was actually first party data deal. So this was again, 12 years ago, there was no Facebook to go out and target audiences. None of this stuff existed. Um, so you had to go do deals with publishers. There was some data exchanges that were kind of popping up, but those were still early. And so we were literally, I was literally going out and doing deals with publishers. And we did a deal with this um, sort of teen website at the time that's long defunct and um, got a bunch of data and put it into this acne medication campaign that we were running. And, you know, we were running, I don't know, 10 strategies for that campaign and, the acne medication strategy or the, sorry, the team networking uh, site data segment was literally off the charts. And I had this sort of light bulb moment and said, wow, this, you know, this data targeting stuff really works. Um, and I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a huge music fan. I'm just a ticket junkie. I've always been. And my first thought was, gosh, teams and, and venues could really, you know, benefit from this because this was secondary sort of peak of the secondary market. There was no direct consumer marketing happening. So I was naive enough to start a business going after that. Um, we actually started the company as a white label platform for publishers. So it wasn't even, there was no ticket IQ. It was tick IQ, TIQ IQ was a terrible name and, uh, but wasn't meant to be a consumer name, was meant to be more of a B2B name. Um, And we were giving big newspapers like the Washington Post and the Boston Globe and the New York Post um, a platform to sell tickets. Now, at that point, the view, the aggregated view of the ticket market was pretty simple. It was StubHub and and Ticketmaster. We had those two integrations. um, And the whole play was not to sell, make money on the secondary affiliate fee for Ticketmaster, but to, to aggregate data from publishers. So people reading articles about the Capitals and the Wizards and others on the Washington Post, and then use that data to go sell tickets on behalf of um, rights holder clients. So signed a lot of publishers, got a couple clients um, out of the gate and enough to sort of prove that the model worked. Um, market was really early at that point. We were probably five years ahead of of, uh, you know, should have started the company five years later and that would have been perfect, would have added about 10 years to my life. Um, but we, you know, built enough of a track record and then when the market started to shift and teams really started to go at this direct to consumer strategy, we had already done a lot of it and, um, you know, have continued to work with teams. So we, we continue to aggregate data from a lot of sources. Ticket IQ now as a brand is, is a big ticket destination. So we see a lot of shopping, but we also still power ticketing for about a thousand publishers, give or take from some, you know, medium sized publishers. We don't work the Washington Post anymore. Um, all the way through to, uh, uh, about a th- uh, 700 or so social media influencers. So these are like Instagram accounts with, you know, a hundred thousand fans, Twitter accounts with 50,000 fans. So really critical mass of audience, but hyper focused on you know, team affiliations and team affinity. So we use all that to, to ultimately go out and sell tickets for teams through Ticket IQ, through Ticketmaster, um, SeatGeek, Frontgate, you name the primary platform. We've got some form of integration with it and we're 
you know, selling tickets through that on behalf of our, our partners. So data, that's, um, you know, that's one of the code words that we have around here. Um, and so I want to ask you because there's two big things going on this week that I think that made, you know, having this conversation today timely. And one of the things where I was like, oh, let's get this done because I want to post this before the World Series is over. So I want to ask you about <laughs> some of the <laughs> some of the data around the World Series because, um, you know, one of the things I often am uncertain of is whether or not people are either looking at data correctly or using data correctly. Um, and then I'm just always fascinated by it because, you, you know, if you look at it and you have good filters, you can learn a whole lot of stuff about it. So what do we need to know about the World Series right now from, you know, through your expert lens? Well, the, the simple math is that prices in D.C. are going up and prices in Houston are going down, which isn't isn't a surprise. It's a pretty surprise. <laughs> Rocket science. I like know, that. <laughs> the, the Astros, you know, listen, you let the data tell you, right? Uh, usually the data supports what it is you're thinking um, will be the case, but sometimes it tells you a different story. And, and we always, you know, try to use the data to guide, to guide how we, we, we present content. Um, yeah, but so just as context in, in, you know, this is the first, um, world series in DC, uh, or, you know, since 1940, whatever it was. Um, and it is currently the fifth most expensive world series that we've tracked, uh, this decade. You know, one, I guess one of the good things about, our business taking about five years longer than we thought to really play out is we have a lot of ticket data. So we've got a whole decade's worth of um, data. And for the World Series, this is number five. So, you know, pretty, pretty historic company for the Nationals behind only the Cubs of 2016, of course, the Astros of 2017, Dodgers of 2017, and then the Indians of 16. So um, now, that's going up. Uh, prices are up about 20% since the beginning of the series. So it's possible that they could overtake the Indians for number four, but probably not. Um, but it'd still be a top five World Series all time, which is pretty good company. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because, you know, I live in D.C., and I remember the Caps being so huge. Um, and But the Caps' run to the Stanley Cup playoffs was um, – seemed right because people are huge caps fans now all of a sudden watching the data watching all these numbers and all the data around the, the nationals go to the world series is, is seems strange to me uh, because to say that the market is apathetic to the nationals most of the time i think it's being generous uh you know so it's really <laughs> so it's really interesting to watch this and so and it, it, there's a question here which is you know Knowing that the easy answer is the tickets, the prices are going up in Washington and they're falling in Houston, is how as not just consumers but as professionals, how should we approach data like for something like this too? Especially when you compare it to the context of what uh, even the first round of the playoffs was, where the Nationals tickets were going for below face value. You know, how do we approach this data? You know, and how do we ask questions of the data or create hypotheses in a situation like this? It's pretty volatile. Yeah, it's a good, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, um, the data, I, I always try to let the data tell the story rather than, you know, uh, I mean, I think, like I said, I, I oftentimes do have a hypothesis going in of what I think is going to happen. Most of the time the data supports that, but I think from a consumer perspective, I mean, we always look at these big events and say, listen, if you're going to spend, you know, the cheapest ticket in DC for, for tomorrow night, um, is is a thousand bucks, give or take. So if you're going to spend that much money, just get the ticket you want, and and don't spend all the time, sort of unless you want to track the market and that's your thing. And you know, it, if I was buying tickets, that's what I do. But um, you know, buy the ticket you want, focus on location, prices. Maybe they move fifteen, you know, fifteen percent uh, max up. Um, you're probably in a situation like this. Prices aren't going to go down uh, only because you know. They're, the hype's only building, you would know better than me, but they could now clinch the series at home, which is, you know, is a big twist from where people thought it could be, um, you know, when the series started, which was, you know, got to be great if they, they are not out of it when they get back to DC. Now it's totally flipped and people are thinking, wow, could, could they clinch? So, um, 
you know, by yeah, the my prediction would be if they win tomorrow, win on Friday and the game, they can clinch on Saturday, that that will be, um, I would say probably the hottest world series ticket and, uh, a top three world series ticket of the last decade. That'll be my prediction. Well, we could test that. Yeah. Maybe potentially. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a reasonable. So that game is Saturday night is the most expensive. Just pulling that up, um, right now. So Saturday is the most expensive. Um, it's also up the most. The, the get-in price is up 56% for Saturday since the series started. And the get-in price for Game 5 is up 47%. So, you know, I think Saturday night, whether they can clinch or not, I mean, that's that's a party. You know, and everyone's really excited to, to do that, October baseball, for the first time in a generation. And, you know, we always see with I – mean, if you look at who's number one in this list, it's the Cubs. And – it's all about scarcity, right? It's all about when's the last time. And even year to year, the Astros, this number two all, all time ranking that we've tracked is the Astros 2017. This year, they're, they're not even close. Their average is like 1200 bucks compared to 3000 in 2017. So just having been there two years ago, demands dropped by almost half in, in, in over half in Houston, which is interesting to see. Well, let me ask you this, too, because you brought up the, the, you know, sort of the, I forget the term that they use, but, you know, you're an Alabama fan and I'm an Alabama fan. Um, there is a, a tax really on the price of the tickets after you've won consistently for a while. Uh, is that something that you see that's consistent across all sports? It really is. There's, I, I'm trying to think of any exceptions to that rule. Um, you know, the one last year, the, the, the Warriors were high relative to other um, finals because it was the last year at Oracle. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't think that was, that was any reason other than that. So I think it is, is a pretty consistent rule and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling for an exception to the rule that, you know, teams that have been back or repeat, um, you know, it's always cheaper the second time around. So if you, if you know, you're, you're looking for a dynasty and you can't make it to the, the first year, you know, there's always, there's always the next year as Houston this year is showing. I mean, it's a, it's a 65% discount compared to 2017, which is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Right. And, and I, I kind of frame the question that way because of a hypothesis. Well, I don't know if it's a hypothesis, but I've been using the term now for, for a bit. So I'll continue with it. I have, it seems that a lot of sports teams operate on a hypothesis that winning will solve all of their problems. It will wash away any issues they have. Um, but this data, right? Just from the winning, um, shows that that's not necessarily the case. And I know that some of the things that you were talking about in your introduction and some of the stuff we've talked about offline is that you you focus a lot on selling direct to fans and direct to consumers, you know. And so I'm curious about how much variability there is between winning and losing teams or is the success or failure of your efforts really built as much on smart marketing and smart targeting as anything else? It's a great question. Um, obviously, you know, World Series, you're in a high demand situation. Winning, in some cases, absolutely does solve all problems, right? You are a uh, finalist in any sport. You don't have to worry about selling tickets. Um, now, interestingly, the Golden State Warriors last year intentionally didn't sell out in the finals because they wanted to price optimize, right? So I think if, if you get to the point where you're in a final, and you have the ability, you know, you're sitting on tickets, which the Warriors were, there's a real revenue optimization opportunity. And that's a pretty, they're pretty sophisticated. They're smart guys out there. They've been one of the early proponents of Ticketmaster's new tech stack. And so they, they're taking advantage of that, not selling out intentionally, you know, playing into this sort of slow ticketing trend that has developed in the, in the, in the, in the ticket world of, hey, selling out is not the definition of success anymore. Revenue optimization is, is the definition of success. So a little bit of a side note to your original question, but I think in these high demand scenarios, selling out is, is still your choice. You got to plan if you don't want to sell out, right? It takes real strategic foresight and execution to not sell out. But if you do it and, and, and you're successful, you, you can really be rewarded from a incremental revenue standpoint. You're seeing a lot of teams do that this year. Uh, or, or now we NFL, quite a few teams were doing that. Even heading, we did this NFL guide on the Ticket IQ blog. 
And, you know, there was five or six teams that you would think are 100% sold out. Even the Packers had tickets for sale, you know, uh, at the beginning of the season. They may not now. I haven't looked in the last couple of weeks. But they were, you know, they're $500 tickets. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're revenue optimizing. And I think we're seeing less teams or more teams say, hey, I don't need to sell season tickets, every season ticket. I might want to hold on to some of those tickets and bet on my own upside. Because if we're good, I can make a lot more money and play, you know, play, play that, uh, uh, dynamic pricing game. And we're seeing a lot more of that. But to your original question on, is it a function of, you know, winning or, you know, just, uh, uh, good marketing? I think it's, it's both. I mean, I think if you're not good, you have to change your marketing strategy, right? If you, if you are a team that's struggling, you have to emphasize access and affordability and stars and maybe even be willing to promote the opponent. Um, Versus a team that's winning, you have the luxury of, of, of taking a much broader view and, you know, focusing on the brand. And so I think it's really about suiting your particular selling environment to the right message. And just because you're losing doesn't mean you can't market yourselves. I mean, I think some teams get in that mindset of saying, ah, oh, you know, we're, our season's over. Like, let's just shut it down. Right. And we, you know, we work with about five NFL teams and two of them are out of it. You know, but we're still selling tickets and, um, it's just a different message. So I think it's really important to make sure you're, you know, you're, you're in touch with that message. Cause if you're putting out the wrong message, that can really ring hollow with fans and, and ultimately alienate fans, I think, in a way that is counterproductive in the long term. Yeah. I, I like the way you ex- talked about it because one of, I can think a guiding marketing principle of mine was be that, that, you know, your marketing should be kind of a living thing. It should be sort of fluid. And the most important thing is you can't take your market for granted. So like you, you know, you can't just make assumptions, you know, and you can't just, um, you know, you aren't your market. And the, that sort of your answer captures all of those ideas, I, I think, pretty well. Um, one thing I do want to not miss the opportunity to talk about as well, because you brought up the Golden State Warriors, and this has been the tip off of the NBA season. Um, there was a lot of player movement this year. Um, there's no real true super team because the Warriors, Kevin Durant went to the Nets, Clay Thompson got hurt. So this is kind of, at least as a fan, I would say this is the most wide open NBA season we've seen in a while. Um, yep. what are some interesting things that you're seeing in the NBA data so far? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely the most, um, sort of diverse, Opening day in terms of demand. I mean, the biggest storylines that we've, we've tracked. I mean, California is the center of the NBA world without a question. You've got three teams out there who have average prices over 250 bucks in the Warriors, the Clippers and the Lakers. Um, so it's kind of California and the rest of the world. And, and that's a great example of data driving, you know, the, the perspective. Cause I, you know, Pulled up the we got our data together for the preseason preview that we we did about two weeks ago on the Ticket IQ blog, and you know right away that jumped out is that Cali is is the center of the universe. Um, right after that though it's New York, so you've got the Knicks and the Nets is the 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 fourth and the fifth most expensive team from us. Now this is all secondary pricing, so um, it's interesting to me in that those are, you know, and it kind of makes sense. It's New York and California just from a, you know, a, a those are the cultural homes of basketball too, a lot to a large they're part. The, they're the cultural homes. And I also think they're the, the demos with the highest, you know, percentage of disposable income to spend 250 bucks on a ticket, which, um, you know, so to some extent it's a function of what the market will bear in those, in those two cities. Um, or three cities, I should say, with San Fran, LA, and New York. But yeah, they're also big, you know, huge basketball towns and there's demand for them. Uh, so, you know, those are the, 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 the other couple of interesting other small data points. The biggest jump, um, of the season, uh, was the Pelicans. Um, so sorry, my bad. I got that wrong. The biggest jump of the season was the, uh, I had it and now I've forgotten it. Um, was the Clippers. Sorry, Clippers was the biggest jump. That, that makes sense. Pelicans was number two, uh, at 30% increase year over year on the secondary market. Uh, and then the Nets were, Nets were the third biggest price increase. On the downside, the Celtics had the, uh, third biggest drop, 
Um, so Kyrie in total accounted for about 50 uh, basis points of, of, of percentage drop um, in the Nets going up and the Celtics going down. So he, he's definitely shown what you know one star can do to ticket prices by leaving one market and joining another. And what about the uh, impact of the uh, the new building in San Francisco? How much of an impact is that having on the Warriors? Yeah, so the Warriors are still um, the second most expensive team <clears throat> for the season. The opening night price for the Chase Center was this, also the second most expensive game that we tracked um, for opening night. So... You know, second only to the Clippers. You know, the Clippers is just, they're at another level. I think, you know, they're, they're sensing this could be their year, you know, Kawhi's home. Uh, and it's like the Clippers opener was 238 was the get in, the Warriors 221, and then the next was the Lakers at 151, and the Knicks at 133. So the get in in, in, for the Clippers and the Warriors was like almost 50% higher than, uh, 40% higher than the next highest. Yeah, I mean, to, looking at these things is so is so um, interesting because one of the things that I'm always curious about when I look at the data and then when I sort of allow the market to take a, effect on a ticket, right? And this is a um, probably a debate. I don't know if it is a debate or not, but we'll for the, these intents we will call it one between um, the idea that the ticket is a commodity and the other side that wants the ticket to have hold some inherent value. Um, and when I look at these things, I go, hey, this is great, right? New Orleans is up 30% on the secondary market, right? And the Nets are up huge and the Clippers are up huge, but the Celtics are all way down. And it brings me back to some of the things we talked about, um, you know, earlier in the podcast. And then like we've had conversations over the years about something similar, um, you know, and it's like, what is the right place for the ticket in the markets the marketplace right is it a commodity or is it not a commodity and you know how if you believe it is is a commodity you know what's the natural conclusion of that or if you don't believe it's a commodity and you want to try to control it a little bit you know how do you do that and yeah the point yeah. i guess the, or the question not the point the question is sort of um you know knowing kind of the history of your business is that the with the live experience being so unique Right. Um, and kind of the customer journey and the customer path being very, um, for lack of a better term, sometimes confusing or difficult for a lot of consumers. Um, you know, knowing the fluctuating prices and the commodity thing and the primary versus secondary, all these factors, you know, what do you see as a way to make the, the business a little bit more customer focused or and a little bit more sustainable for people? Because I think, you know, I, I hear all these numbers, I see all this stuff, and, and I'm just always interested about that question. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's, it's obviously the, the question on every, you know, AD or, or head of ticketing's uh, mind these days. And I think, I think it's about the, the answer I keep coming back to is variety. And we were talking a little bit about college before, and I think, I think this is a good framing for college where, you know, they've created this year we, we do a lot in the college space. We've got about 12 different college football clients and we're, we're rolling out a bunch of college basketball. There's more variety in college ticket products than, than in any other um, league that, that I'm aware of. And by that, I mean single game sales, mini packs, subscription plans, um, seasons, right? multiple different sort of season flavors uh, you've got the, the, the sort of mobile only seasons, you've got the more traditional seasons. And so I, I think the key for any ticket seller is really trying to create as many of those as possible that gives, um, them the opportunity to connect with the fan in the way that best suits that one to one relationship, right? And I think it's gotta feel for the fan like a one to one relationship. And if you've got a, you know, product market fit that isn't there, it's not gonna feel that way, right? It's, you know, as a fan, I, I'm no longer interested in, you know, 81 baseball games. I'm not sure who is. I think some people still are, but, you know, I, I am interested in a 10 game pack or something else. So I think having the diversity of product is, is number one. And then number two is having the ability to connect that product to the right fan at the right time is critical. And, and that's really where Ticket IQ tries to come in for 
a lot of our partners is, um, you know, putting them in front of fans. And I think what's, what's interesting in this day and age, it's sort of the, 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 the what's interesting and also what's the challenge is that there, there's so many ways to touch the consumer, uh, through media and, um, you know, opportunities for content discovery. And I think if you can treat, you know, the assumption we always go into with a client is, you know, you, the, the, the average fan that's out there doesn't know what's happening tonight. They, we know they're ticket buyers because that's how we sort of measure our database. They bought tickets to something at some point in this demo, um, in this geographic region. Now let's make sure they're aware of your content. That could be a $10, uh, uh, premier lacrosse, lacrosse league ticket, who is a big client of ours that did really well. Um, or it could be a, you know, $250 football ticket. So I think, um, helping the, the consumer discover the content is key because people, I think in the business assume that, you know, cause we're so in it, right. And it's like, this is what we do every day. Of course, everyone knows there's a Red Bull game tonight, or there's an NYCFC game tonight. But the reality is that they really don't. And, and I think the, the consumers that we want to get into the stadiums are not just the consumers that know that's great. It's the consumers that, that don't know that events happening, create sort of proactive uh, event discovery that tells them the events happening and then let them make a decision about what to do with that event. Now that's more of a single game, I think, sell that, that I just talked through, but it, it applies just as, just as, as much to, trying to sell seasons or a mini pack or a subscription plan um, to a consumer. So I think it's all about just that product market fix fit and the right channel and point, you know, touch point for those consumers. And it's, I think historically teams have really sort of, it's been a phone based selling process and that still works to some degree. And you and Tony Knopp talked a little bit about this on one of your last podcasts is it's, that just doesn't scale, but I think having the human touch point at, at somewhere along the line is still critical. But it may be that the, the, all, you know, you can qualify a consumer to the point where they get handed off and then closed and save hundreds of man hours by doing that versus, you know, just picking up the phone and calling a, a list of a thousand leads. So I think it's about that smart, digitally driven, data focused targeting. Um, and having the most diverse set of products to do that is going to put you in the best position. You got one product to sell, you're really limiting your ability to sell. If you got a hundred products to sell, you're making it a lot easier. Yeah, that's like the old hammer and nail thing, right? If you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, as far as the awareness goes and the point you were making about people just assuming that everybody knows exactly what's going on, I was involved with a startup about 24 months ago and we were focused on that thing and we did some extensive surveying of the market. And that was a, the number one issue was awareness. Uh, it was came back. Um, I don't have the exact number in, in front of me, but it was, um, it was huge. It was, I, I want to say above 70% of people said the number one reason they didn't go to more things was because they didn't know that something yeah. was going on. And it, it's, it plays out over and over and over again. And this goes back to my point of, you know, you aren't your market. So you can't assume that everybody knows exactly what the same thing you do because they don't. Um, yep. And I, yep. like, I like the way you frame this too, because it seems that it's something that I think we lose sight of, which is that the product market fit is the, probably the most important thing, right? It goes back to my initial question about value, right? What's the value you're trying to create? Um, I almost inevitably, talk to people about if you're having a trouble reaching or selling to your market, have you educated them well enough? Because I mm -hmm. think a little bit of one of the challenges a lot of people feel like is that maybe they're either as clear as they need to be with their market or they feel like their market knows more than they do because of some of these, um, and I think largely anecdotal Things about like, oh, mm -hmm. well, the consumer's 76.2589% down the road to a purchase before you engage with a salesperson. Most of those mm -hmm. statements are complete bull. Um, and then you got to be consistent. And I think like Tony and I were talking about, sports teams are very good at being consistent about making phone calls. <laughs> um, but the thing yeah, is, it's yeah. like marketing and selling is not just about one mode or one medium. Right. It's about being consistent across your entire marketing range. And from my point of view as a marketer, marketing is basically everything. And so, you know, I really, 
really do dig the way that you put that. Um, you know, well, when, you know, to, just to answer one of your other questions, is, yeah. <clears throat> as an add-on to that, you know, primary versus secondary, I think you have to have a consistent message across your channels for sure in terms of how you're presenting the product or products. Then if you think about secondary, I mean, because the way that we're seeing secondary play out and you were talking to Joe um, over at Seed Hall about this and how they use secondary, I thought that was an interesting conversation. And, um, you know, it really is most teams that we see now are managing secondary through a consolidator like a dynamic pricing partners or an event elect or someone like that. And then they're doing whatever they're doing on the direct consumer side. So what that creates is really for the first time ever in my mind, and this is the first year I've seen it at this scale uh, of a team really setting the, the, the metrics for primary and secondary. And if you look at primary secondary comparisons this year across really most sports, the range is very tight between pricing on secondary and pricing on primary. And that's intentional, right? The, the teams that are doing a good job of managing their markets cross channel, which is critical. You have to manage cross channel because secondary is a huge distribution channel. Um, it's not the only distribution channel as it was for the last 20 years, but it's, it's going to continue to be a huge distribution channel. So I think having not only, you know, the consistency from a messaging standpoint, but understanding what you're doing on the secondary side and having a clear strategy there that ties back to what you're doing on primary is critical. And I don't think if you have that holistic view, I think you're kind of setting yourself up for failure on both sides because, you know, if you're not managing your secondary market, it gets, it gets harder to sell primary, you know, vice versa. And so we, we're big believers in healthy secondary, healthy primary. Yeah. And a lot of our clients that we work with, we're, we're selling through Ticket IQ through a consolidator partner because we, we tie into all the major, you know, uh, one tickets and, you know, consolidators and all those guys. So we're selling through Ticket IQ on quote unquote sold out. And then we're also doing direct to consumer and, and sometimes that's about location. Sometimes it's about price, but more often than not, we find it's about location mm-hmm. and, you know, and access. And like the thing that the team I think has today that n- no one will ever have, and this is to me the most compelling competitive advantage is, is access, right? The team can provide access in a way that, um, no other marketplace ever can. And I think, you know, uh, I think Joe actually talked about this as well, the high fives and stuff. Teams have to embrace that and, and, and realize that it's, it's, it's free money for them. I mean, it doesn't cost them anything to, you know, give fans the opportunity to get behind the curtain a little bit. Um, and, and the impact on that is, is just exponential in terms of creating lifetime value. And, um, and I think teams are realizing that. And, and so we look at the whole direct consumer shift that's happening as the first touch point. Right? So, we, when we work on a rev share model, so a lot of times we negotiate with teams on a rev share and, you know, and I say to them, I said, listen, well, you know, we're talking about one transaction here. This is a customer that you're going to have for five years. So yeah, my rev share might be a little higher than you're used to, but this is just the first touch point. What's the LTV look like that against what you're paying me? And once they frame it that way, it's sort of the light bulb goes off and say, wow, okay. Yeah. I guess, you know, I guess I can pay you a little bit more because, um, I can afford to. I'm really not. I can afford to. I mean, think about the economics of it. It's like, wait, they're paying us whatever, whatever they pay us. One game, they're going to make money. You know, obviously we're not getting 50% of the tickets. So right there, they're making, they're making money, right? If that ticket hadn't sold out, that's, that's free money. Then they're spending money in concessions and, you know, merch and all that. So, you know, it's a pretty compelling flywheel. If you think about it from a team perspective, I just don't think teams have thought about the flywheel concept. In, in the same way that traditional businesses do, but it's, it's, it's something they, I think, are starting to do. And I think it'll, it'll help a lot. Um, I can tell you for really- sure that, that the answer to that is they aren't. And I can tell you that they're, they are starting to, uh, and, and it goes back to what we were talking about on the marketing the ticket. It's an education process, right? Because yeah. it's just, you know, it's not because people don't get it. It's a pretty easy concept to understand. It's just that you've never had to do it before and change is difficult. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a, we, we've all grown up in a secondary world, you know, and yeah. so that's that's the sort of default mode. And, I, you know, I think it's also interesting, this, you know, secondary, primary. I mean, there's a lot of guys on Twitter that, you know, really are, are sort of Ticketmaster bashers and verified fan bashers. And, I, you know, I think it's like the, there's a lot of people who have this 
black and white view, I think is the category grows. There's lots of room for everyone to win. Well, there's um, billions of dollars in play here. I mean, there's enough for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a, it's a massive category, but you have to, you know, I think the different, there's no free lunch. Whereas 10 years ago, there was some free lunch. Right. Getting passed around. Well, this is a very now important person, point you're making. You have to add value. Having right. a black card that you with a high credit limit is not valuable anymore. Right. Because right. I mean, and that's what some of these people are lost in. They're stuck in that mindset. Yeah. And I think once you sort of realize that and recognize the need to add value, then, you know, the question is, can you add value as a business? And I think there's businesses that can't, and I think there's businesses that can, and the businesses that can, I think are going to continue to be successful. And, you know, but ultimately it all comes down to this. It's a, we're living in a right holder centric world now, and they, they are, if they don't already control the ecosystem, they will in the next two to three years, uh, maybe five, if they're really, you know, slow adopters, but you know, as a someone thinking about the category, you know, if I would say, "Hey, wh- 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 how do you start a business in the in the ticketing space or the event space?" Um, it, you've got to figure out a way to add value to the rights holder in some way, shape, or form. And if you can't do that, it's it's a it's a pretty tough climb. Yeah, and and I, I that that ticket man that Ticketmaster bashing thing is an interesting point because. You know, I will often get lumped into that. And, I, and then I talk to the Ticketmaster people and they go, you, well, you really don't have a beef with Ticketmaster. And I was like, well, no, I have a beef with people who aren't marketing effectively. Um, and I yeah. think that like when you talk about what's a business that you could start, um, you know, anybody who can add value around, explain like, you know, Jesse just did, not, you know, when we were talking about lifetime customer value and how to acquire and keep customers more effectively, there's an opportunity there. Right. Um, and I think you just have to look at it as a partnership now, as opposed to like you were talking about the free lunch. Right. It's like where you could just kind of hang on tight to the system and it would it would reward you. That just doesn't you, exist. You didn't, you didn't even have to hang on that tight. No, you, you can hang on pretty loosely. Like, you know, <laughs> pretty loose. <laughs> yeah, you can hang on. I mean, I, I never – that was I, I, that was one failure is I never hung on loose like that. I should have. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. you do you, – you bring up uh, – and one thing I don't want to miss though is like um, – because we've talked a lot about, you know, rights holders and consumers and all these things. And one thing that you brought up that was interesting, and I don't want to miss it because I thought it was really, really uh, an interesting point, um, is, you know, how can we make it easier to sell tickets? And you brought it up to me under the idea of if we don't make it easier on customers to buy, if we don't make the process a little bit better for people, make it a little more frictionless, um, the business might not be sustainable. And you know, as we, you brought it up and I thought about it too, I was going, you know, I know if I look around, there's lots and lots of empty seats, uh, everywhere mm-hmm. you look. Right. And, and it does, you know, when you frame it like that, I go, you know, you're right. Because at some point the things that are kind of holding everything together are going to collapse, right? Because bubbles burst, you know, markets fade. It's just the true. And if you're not constantly like innovating and disrupting yourself, which I know are two cliched terms, you miss out on opportunities. Um, I kind of want to give you the platform to talk about this a little bit more because this was kind of the foundation of when you started Ticket IQ. Yeah. I mean, so I I think, you know, what's interesting about sports and sports and music, I think in some ways are different is attendance is actually no longer a requirement for a successful business model in sports. Full stop. Look at ESPN bowl games between December 12th and December 23rd or 24th. That is reality TV and it's very successful. It's a profitable business. There's a whole division inside ESPN, ESPN events that runs it. Those, those games don't, they sell maybe, you know, the worst game maybe sells a thousand tickets. The best game maybe sells 10,000, but that's not the crux of the business model. The crux of the business model is just reality TV, cheap content, right? And so if you think about that reality for sports, um, I think, you know, everything could go that way at some point. And the value, you know, the value of TV contracts continues to go up. So in order to keep the in-person experience relevant, now you lose something if you don't have the in-person, obviously, but just purely from an economic standpoint, it's not needed. And if you don't 
fight for that at a consumer level, I think there's too much competition and, and, you know, music is a big competitor. I think music in some ways is the opposite because the, the live experience is so amplified. Whereas for sports, it's almost like the at home experience is more amplified. So, you know, music, I feel like is fairly safe. I'm not terribly worried about music. Um, but, but sports I am worried about because I feel like it, it's, you know, I know you've talked about sort of this concept of, you know, sports is community. And ultimately when I started the business, it was, it was really consumer frustration of how do you, why is this so hard to get tickets? I love going to events. It's, you know, the, the atmosphere, the excitement is, is really what I live for. The process of getting there is really hard and should be easier. Now I get, I show up every day and, and, and I have the, the question of like, you know, if we don't, improve this as a category what's what's the assurance that we're going to be around filling seats in um you know 20 years uh and and i don't i don't know that there's any guarantee there and um you know i think there's it could it could move into a niche market more than the mass market you know event attendance and i don't think it's going to go away but like if you think about what do i want i want like a smaller more intimate experience so you know, do we start cutting the size of venues from, you know, a hundred thousand person, you know, Michigan stadium to a 20,000 per, you know, I don't know. There's, there's a bunch of scenarios that, that, that I think could play out, but the core of it is if you get, if you keep the demand strong because you're putting content in front of people and you're getting them into the seats, you avoid that problem. And I think that's the central challenge of, of the sports industry is that, um, we're not real good at that. You know, we're, we just have relied on third parties. And um, now that we live in a different world of, of just ultra competition for attention, um, you know, if you're not good at that, it, it, it is incredibly hard to tell the story and get someone into a seat. And, um, you know, that, that scares me a bit. I mean, it, it's, it, it sort of scares me as someone who loves sports and loves the community aspect of it, that, you know, that, that is, that is jeopardized. And maybe I'm being a little extremist, but, um, I do have a sense that th- that is a little bit in jeopardy. Well, I don't necessarily know if you're uh, being an alarmist at all. I think that it's just a a, a nature of cons- you know changing consumer demands, uh, the trend towards consumers having less uh, time and less um, purchasing power. Uh, it co- you know, and it comes with the idea that like if you start a habit, right, it becomes easy to or tough sometimes to break that habit. So if your habit's to go to the movies or go to a craft brewery or go somewhere else as opposed to going to see a baseball game or a basketball game or a con- you know a concert, it's tough to change that behavior. And so I think like when you let these opportunities slip away, it becomes difficult to get people to take the actions that you need to make them take the actions you want them to take. It's an education process. And I think that one of the challenges is that in sports, a lot of times now you assume that everybody, because there's sports in the newspaper, there's sports section on the website, there's sports content everywhere that everybody's paying attention to and everybody's seeing it. But that's only one step in the process. And like, you kind of have to educate people about the whole nature of the relationship and it's a relationship and it doesn't go in a straight line. It has ebbs and flows. And the way I talk about the TV rights and one of the best ways that I've ever seen it described was there's a book called The Club. And I know I've mentioned it before uh, about mm-hmm. the rise of the Premier League. And it was Richard Scudamore who said an empty soccer pitch, an empty soccer stadium is a bad – and he said football because it's England. An empty football stadium is a bad soundstage for a TV show. And I was, <laughs> you point out all those ESPN bowl games. The Bahamas Bowl might have a thousand people there, and it's an awful. It's like watching a bad college, uh, high school football game. But sure, yeah, they, they yeah. probably get numbers because people are sitting there going, "I don't want to talk to my uncle." <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. And that's, that's right. But that's it. I mean, the bowls on remote islands, I think, is is an, an even tougher sell. You know, when you're putting a bowl on on December 18th in Hawaii, like good luck. I mean, that's there's, that's a really tough sell. But no, I agree. I mean, I think the you know that's what the, the vibrancy of the people creates. You know, the atmosphere. So to me, the sort of dystopian view is you have these events just being played in front of a studio audience, right? That's like paid to be there or doesn't care and. 
um, you know, I don't think, you know, we're not there certainly, but I think as, as an industry, we need to be proactive about making sure we don't ever get there. And that gets back to all this stuff of, you know, the right message, the right consumer and, you know, all the, the sports content. I mean, that's almost like the power user that's tapped into that, right? If I'm reading the paper and I'm watching ESPN, I got the app. I'm, I'm not the fan you need to be selling to as much as the fan that isn't tapped into that content. And how do you get them into the stadium and, and create an experience that, you know, I'm not a hardcore fan, but I, this was great. It was fun. It was soccer. It was, you know, lacrosse. It was baseball, whatever it was. It was a great, fun, affordable experience. And I want to come back and do that again. Um, you know, that I think is the biggest, the biggest challenge that uh, as an industry we've got to overcome. Yeah, and you actually did a great job of, of of pitching without pitching my workshop in Melbourne, the fans for life, because that's <laughs> that's exactly what I'm, a lot of I'm going to talk about, which is like you don't know why I'm going to the game, right? I could be going to escape something, I could be going to interclean clients, I could be going to um, take my son, right? There's all these different reasons, um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, mm-hmm. they're all great opportunities. Um, and the thing is, is like if you don't get me in the door. Maybe you never get a chance to communicate me on all the great fun and all the great, uh, you know, experiences I can have. And it's just a missed opportunity because I still feel, and I, um, and the data, even though I've been beating on the data a little bit and kind of poking fun at it, shows that people still care. And mm-hmm. it's one of the great things that we have going for us if we're selling and marketing live events and experiences is that people care and people want to consume them. The data is very clear on this is that people are spending more of their money on experiences than at any other time in history. And that number continues to yep. grow. Um, that's yep. a, that's data you don't need to look, you don't need to even uh, accumulate to know um, because you can feel it. You see it, and it's great. Um, and I would tell the teams what? and leagues that they should probably copy us as far as being uh, deliberate and consistent about educating our markets. <laughs> For sure, and you know, I think that growth is is a double edged sword because it it is getting bigger and bigger. There's more events than ever, which means if you're in the business, you've got to work even harder than you used to have to work to get someone in your door because. It's, you know, the amount of, I think about like 25 years ago, like what could you do on any given night in even a city like New York? I mean, it's, it's exponentially more, there's exponentially more opportunities in 2019 than there ever have been. So, um, the, the pie is growing, but it's also becoming, um, you know, I think in some ways, uh, it's certainly more competitive and, and, you know, if you're not proactive, you're, you're going to get left out is, is our perspective on it. That's right. Now, Jesse. Speaking of being consistent and delivering great content, tell people where they can find you on the internet or just in general. Sure. Maybe not uh, on the internet. So not on the internet. Yeah. Uh, I live in New York, um, with my wife from Alabama and my, our two kids. Uh, we, on the internet, I'm, um, my, uh, uh, Twitter handle is my middle name. Everyone asks where it came from. Uh, it's, it's S it's stag like the deer. Um, with six G's, um, because the one with five G's was already taken. Um, uh, so stag, uh, is my Twitter handle. Um, and then LinkedIn, Jesse Lawrence and, uh, Facebook, I don't really use for work stuff, but, uh, LinkedIn and, and Twitter, um, you know, both, both. And then ticket IQ has, you know, handles on, on all the major platforms and, push data, you know, we really focus on the data element at a very granular level, like, you know, team price trends and all that kind of stuff. So if you, if you like data and tickets, um, ticket IQ is a, is a good follow on any of the social channels. Yeah, I would say that. And then check out also your tech crunch uh, piece, the pieces when you write those, because if you, even if you are, keep a skeptical eye on data, I think that the data that Ticket IQ and Jesse produce is great and you should be paying attention to it, even if it's only to disprove the ideas that you have <laughs> or, you know, so you can discard any belief in it. But, hey, Jesse, man, I appreciate you doing this for me. Dave, thanks so much. Enjoyed it. What did you think of my conversation with Jesse? Send me an email. Let me know. It's Dave at DaveWakeman.com. You can visit me on my website. It's DaveWakeman.com. Where are you going to find my blog, uh, my store, cat, uh, events, all kinds of great stuff there. Uh, so check that out at DaveWakeman.com. I want to remind you, you can always follow me on the Internet. On Twitter, I'm at David Wakeman. 
I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you know the person with the at Dave Wakeman Twitter handle, please get it for me. Uh, the person in question has not tweeted since 2014. Uh, to be on brand, I really need it. Uh, I'd love it if you connect with me on LinkedIn. You can just search for me, Dave Wakeman. You'll find me. If you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I would really dig it. If you would share it with a colleague, a client, or someone you think who would benefit from a conversation like the one I've had with Jesse today, or any of the other great ones like Anthony Esposito from the Braves, uh, Angela Higgins from the Ticketing Professionals of Australia Conference, uh, Maureen Anderson at Intix, Tony Knopp from Ticket Manager, uh, Patrick Ryan from Eventelect, and uh, so many more. Uh, if you're really a big fan, I'd love it if you become a subscriber so you don't miss any episode of The Business of Fun. And if you're a subscriber, why don't you go ahead and leave me a review? Um, it means a lot to me. It helps people discover the podcast, and it encourages me to continue to give um, the effort involved creating really great content and conversations like the one today with Jesse for you. I would also like to remind you that you, if you have not, I think you'll be missing out if you did not sign up for the Talking Tickets newsletter. Comes out every Friday. It's five stories that mattered in the world of tickets, sports, business, concerts, entertainment, or something that uh, touches them. With a short analysis by me about why you should be paying attention to the story and how you can think about it. Uh, it's great. You can get that. The easiest way is by sending me an email, daviddavewakeman.com, with the subject line talking tickets, and I will get that to you. It's one of the most fun things that uh, me and my team do each week. Also, I would encourage you, if you are listening to my voice and you are in Australia, there are two, three things coming up that I would so love for you to be there for. The first one is the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia on the 14th and 15th in, of November in Sydney. Uh, I'm going to be there giving the opening keynote on change and innovation and growth. Um, I'm working it out right now. It's going to be filled with some of my worst dad jokes and some of the best ideas I have about managing change and using it to fuel growth in your organization. You can get tickets to the Ticketing Professionals Conference by visiting them at their website at www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. I'll give you that one more time because I think I stuttered on it. It's www.ticketingprofessionals.com.au. Also, if you're in Melbourne, I'm doing a one-day workshop called Fans for Life, Creating and Keeping Fans in the Modern World, and it's going to be great. I have worked diligently over the last 12 to 18 months accumulating so many ideas and so much knowledge and so much experience um, that I want to share in a forum uh, where we get to work together, shared learning. Um, we're going to talk about the sales funnel. Uh, keeping fans, the fans life cycle. We're going to talk about uh, creating a fan bill of rights, using merchandise as a gateway to open relationships, that and a whole lot more. You can get tickets to that. Um, they're in the show notes or by visiting Eventbrite and searching fans for life. Um, it's going to be great. It's a full day. Then the next day on the 19th of November, I am going to be uh, giving a presentation at the Australian Football League. Fan Summit on lifetime uh, on lifetime value of customer li lifetime customer value and it's part of their one of their most important streams which is all dedicated to growing and keeping fans. Um, so if you are a member of an AFL club, uh, the two appearances in Melbourne go hand in hand. They build off of each other. It's going to be fantastic. Um, I'm going to tell some great great stories about Pat Riley. Um, the Boston Red Sox, the Washington Capitals, uh, and a whole lot more. Uh, I think I've got stories in there about uh, Steve Jobs and Tesla and Jeff Bezos. A whole lot of really, really great examples. And then I talk about some of my own experiences. It's going to be great. So that's the AFL Fan Summit on the 19th of November. As always, I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect for being partners on the Business of Fun podcast. Uh, great great partners um, you should check them out at www.bookingprotect.com so you can find out how you and your organization can partner with booking protect to deliver world-class customer service best customer service in the industry a better more customized buying experience 
customization and, and, and sales enablement is a key factor going into the new year. One you have to think of. Book and Protect will help you with that. And maybe one of the most important selling points is a new stream of revenue. And you can find out all about that by visiting them at www.bookingprotect.com. And I should mention, again, if your ears are touching you and this is in Australia, make sure that you get to the Ticketing Professionals Conference because both me and my good friend Simon Mab, the CEO of Booking Protect, will be there. We're going to be having a stand. Uh, we're going to be talking and speaking. Uh, Simon's going to be on a panel about eliminating and fighting fraud and he's going to be doing a talk about customer service uh, it's going to be a great chance to hang out with us um, send us an email you can use my email address daviddavewakeman.com on wednesday the 13th of november we're going to be doing something we're not sure what just yet but we'll do something and it'll be fun so you, you want to catch up with us there um, again bookingprotect.com www.bookingprotect.com um, and we hope to see you soon okay um, and as always thanks for being there and I'll talk to y'all later